just to give you a sense of the timeline, this is the timeline we've been using to show where everything sort of comes together in, in, the, in the Old Testament. And we see that Job is sitting there with the patriarchs. Now, basically, that means he was almost a contemporary of Joseph. If we look at who was Job, in the Septuagint, that's the Old just turn the volume down a little bit. That's the Old Testament written that was translated into Greek. They, they basically said that they said there was a man in the Syriac book dwelling in the land of Osus, and his name was Jabob, and he himself was the son of Zara, the son of, the son of Esau, and was the fifth generation from Abraham. In other words, back 200 years before Jesus, the Hebrew scholars thought Job was somehow a descendant of zebra, of, of, um, of, of Esau. Now, the, the problem is that when you actually get the Syriac text we have, he's not mentioned. So maybe they just saw the name of Jobab and thought that sounds like a lot like Job. But it does show more importantly that even 200 years before Christ, Job was seen, even though he wasn't an Israelite, he wasn't a descendant of Jacob, that is to say Israel, he, and maybe or maybe not, he was a descendant of, of, of his brother Esau, we know that he was somebody who was considered really important to the people of the ancient world, okay? And I'm going to concentrate here on the narrative bit of the text. Job is a book that is very large and quite confusing. There's like 42 chapters of it or whatever, and most of those chapters are the bit in the middle. Okay, so the bit at the beginning is narrative, and that's chapter 1 and 2, and that gives you both the earthly and cosmic context of what happened, of Job and all the terrible things that befell him. And then in the end, chapter 42 is narrative from verse 7, and it gives you the final conclusion, the resolution, and the restoration of Job. However, the vast majority of Job that's to say chapters 3 to 41 is a big poetic bit in the middle, and it's a series of dialogues, and those are dialogues between Job and his three old friends. His three friends are called Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zaphar, and each of them are fine upstanding fellows in their own clans, and if you look at their genealogy, you'll see that they're somehow related to Abraham. And that then there was Job and young Elu, Elihu, who spoke last, and then finally there was a discussion between Job and God. Much of this poetic bit is wisdom literature. It uses courtroom language and hyperbole, and it's structured like a dialogue. It's going back and forth between Job and his friends till God intervenes at the end in the grand finale. This wisdom literature part is often quoted and referenced in the Old Testament, though we don't realize it. And I was surprised to discover like a big long list of where Job is quoted by other people mostly in the Psalms and the Proverbs. So that means that at the time of the Psalms, at the time of David, the Proverbs, the time of Solomon, he was well known and quoted. And then you see him in Jeremiah quite a lot, and Isaiah, and some of the minor prophets. And that shows just how much Job was revered at that time. Now, what I'd like to do um, is to take the time to read the text which will come up on the screen intermittently. <laughs> it says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, 
and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, there's two oxen in a yoke, by the way, and 500 female donkeys and very many servants. So this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast at the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the day of the feast had run its course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did this continually. Okay. Now, Job was a very prosperous and successful fellow. That's what we get from the beginning of it. And um, those of you who are into prosperity doctrine would think, well, isn't that grand? But then something goes wrong. Now, there was a day, what's that about? Go away. Um, Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hands. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels, and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Then in chapter 2, again there was a day when the Lord, sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? 
Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hands, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the soles of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself when he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when, now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they, they each came from their own place, Eliphaz the Terminite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Nemethite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their head towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to them, for they saw that his suffering was great. So, those are the narrative sections. Let's just uh, go back to... Right. So where's the land of Uz? He lives somewhere to the east of Israel. And you can guess where it is by where all the people came who attacked him. So it's over there somewhere. Now, different groups have wanted to say that they've got a claim on Job. He's revered by the Jews. He's revered by the Christians. He's revered by the Muslims. And he's revered by the Druze in Damascus. So if you're a tourist, you can go to Oman and you can see his tomb. Or if you prefer, though I wouldn't recommend it this week, you can go to Lebanon and see his tomb. Um, but either way, he was highly revered. And when you consider the timeline that this was someone who was a contemporary of, you know, way, way back, of, at the same time as Joseph was being brought into slavery in Egypt. Now, 500 yoke of oxen, one, yoke, one oxen, oxen yoke can plow an acre. 500 yoke of oxen could plow 500 acres. If you plant it for 20 days, you could plant 10,000 acres. So if you take a, something like spelt and ancient grain and say you're getting a ton of grain per acre, he was producing 10,000 tons of grain. If a person eats 100 kilos a year, which is the average in Pakistan today, one ton would feed 10 people for a year. So 10,000 tons was enough to feed 100,000 people. We read in the book of Jonah that the city of Nineveh was a great city 
and it had 120,000 people. Job was producing enough food at that time to feed the largest cities in existence. He was a serious player. And he also had a logistics business. He had 500 donkeys. Now, one donkey can carry 50 kilos, 50, 15 miles. So 500 donkeys can carry 25 tons, 15 miles. So he basically had a fleet of 500 motorboaters. That's worth a lot of money. Think how much money you could make with 500 boaters. Think how much grain you could move from the field to your warehouse. And then he had 3,000 camels. And let's say 2,000 of them were working camels of adult age. So he could transport with 2,000 camels about 500 tons a day, if you take what an average camel can carry. 20 miles, the equivalent of 15 articulated lorry loads. He was running a freight business. He was running a commercial agricultural business. And he also had sheep, enough sheep to make an awful lot of sweaters and cover a lot of sofas and produce a lot of lamb chops, okay? If you took all the lamb chops he could produce, it would cost you over a billion shillings for what he produced in the year at Quality Supermarket, okay? That's the scale of operation this guy was at. You know, as I said, if you're into prosperity doctrine, he's your man, yeah? Um, and he had integrity. He was doing nothing wrong. He was employing thousands of people. For each oxen, you need one guy at the front, another guy at the back with a stick, you know, for a yoke of oxen. So, you know, before you start, that's a thousand people he was employing just plowing and running his freight business and running everything else. He was employing thousands. He was an industrialist, if you like, a social entrepreneur par excellence. And he had a happy family. He had a wife, seven sons, and three daughters, and they all got on with each other. Imagine having 10 children who all get on with each other and have regular parties. And he was considered the greatest man in all the East. Okay? That's who we're dealing with. We're dealing with someone who's a contemporary of way back in the time of Isaac and Jacob and those guys. And he was a much bigger player. Yeah? For thousands of years, people have been reading the book of Job. Why? Why is it in our Bible? Why does everyone, including the Druze and the Muslims and the Jews and the Christians, still have this book with all this very complicated poetry that we don't understand? Because suffering is real and there are no easy answers. We seek meaning and hope when we're in the midst of darkness. And right now in the Middle East, there's a lot of people in the middle of darkness. And from whatever background they're coming from, they've all heard Job. And they're suffering. And in the midst of suffering, it's very easy to look for quick answers particularly if you're not the one who's doing the suffering. So Job's friends came along, and the best thing they did was nothing. When they first came, they came for seven days, and they sat, and they did nothing. And that was their greatest achievement. But the thing is, after they'd done nothing, they decided that it was time to get logical and time to get theological and time to figure out how you took the prosperity, and then you took this bad stuff, and then you took all the kids and the fact they were having a party, and how do you put this all together? And, well, you've got to blame someone in their worldview. 
And so they decide they're going to blame Job, or they're going to blame his kids, or he's done something wrong, or he's got a hidden sin, or da-da-da. Yeah? They just don't accept the thing that's obvious. Bad things can happen to good people, and not because they or their family did anything wrong. It's really funny with Job, and yet I can show it later, but I find this whole set of references where there are little bits of Job all over the Bible, including in the New Testament. But you see, Jesus in John 9, verse 12, when there's the man born blind, the disciples came and they said, Rabbi, who sinned? Because someone must have sinned, because the kid was blind. This man or his parents that he was born blind. And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Bad things happen to good people, and that's because it's a very complicated world. That's not that there aren't generational curses we should deal with. It's not that there aren't sins we should deal with. But bad things happen to good people. There is a spiritual world as real as the physical world, and what happens there matters. And I'm not an ultra-Calvinist. I believe we have free will. And I believe the angelic of free will and the demonic of free will. And in this world of people and spiritual beings made by God with free will, interacting, a lot of bad stuff can happen. And yes, we're all fallen if you're into St. Augustine. But that doesn't explain why bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to good people because there's evil in the world. And there's evil in the world, yes, because of the fall, but even before the fall, there were those angels that had fallen. Before the fall of man, there was the fall of spiritual beings. And as to the whole language of the divine counsel, and we can discuss that some other day, but there is an interaction between these spiritual beings. And on the earth, they do have still a vestige of authority. Before Christ died and rose again, they did an awful lot more. So evil is real. But what do we do in the middle of it? Our response to our own suffering and to our own disappointments matters. It's very easy to say, why me? I remember when I was in college, there was a very famous, you know, photograph that came out of the Spanish Civil War of a soldier who'd been shot as he's falling with the question, why? But most people, it's more, why did I get shot? <laughs> it's why me, yeah? But the real question is, as for me, how do I respond? As for me in my house. Who do I serve? How do I respond? That's, that's where it... That's what you can change. You cannot necessarily change the circumstances. And, yeah, we could all have done stuff different. But, you know, if you go and replay the game of chess and you made a different move, you might still end up not doing very well. Because the alternatives may or may not have been better or worse. And there's a lot of other players, not just us. Okay? 
And our response to the suffering of other people also matters. The response to our own suffering and the response to the suffering of others. Well, the first thing is do unto others as you would have done unto you. Don't, don't go around giving advice that you wouldn't want to be receiving. Um, and we need to operate with true spiritual discernment. Even when people have messed up, discernment is not about knowing what they've messed up on. Discernment is about knowing why and what to do about it. Okay, it's, it's not about proving that you're clever. It's about showing that God cares and that you care and that He has revealed things for that purpose. He doesn't, God doesn't reveal things to you so that you can look clever. Um, and certainly our job is not to dish out judgment and condemnation. People are quite capable of condemning themselves without our assistance. And you're quite capable of condemning yourself, rightly or wrongly, or half rightly or half wrongly, without a whole lot of assistance from outside people. And sometimes it's good, without sounding too much like I'm getting into psychobabble, to Think of yourself as, 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 as the other person, and what advice would you give yourself in this situation? And quite often when you do that, the advice you would give someone in your situation is more graceful than the advice you give yourself quite often. People judge themselves a lot, even more than they judge others. And you've got to back off a bit, but you've also got to say, well, what's God saying in this? And what hidden things have not been revealed? So we have to operate with true discernment, and we have to respond in humility to other people's suffering, and we respond with respect, love, and compassion. And I suggest you also do that to your own suffering. Um, for people who are into trauma counseling, there's a book called, a Christian book called Try Softer. You need, we spend a lot of time trying hard to pull ourselves together, but sometimes you need to actually give yourself a break and realize that you're much better at being judgmental than, than you are at operating in grace to yourself. So, with other people, I'm with yourself. You've got you to give a bit of space there, yeah? We believe as Christians in a God of grace revealed in Jesus Christ, a loving Savior. You know, Job was long before Christ. He was even before David, before Solomon, before all of that. He was before the end of the Exodus. You know, he was before Moses. Ancient, ancient times. And yet, even Job could say, you know, that the worms destroyed this body, yet in my flesh will I see God. He still, even then, in his spirit, cried out for redemption, for a new start. And we are not Hindus. We do not believe in the cycle of karma. That's where you're suffering for your sins of this life or one before. Um, ultimately, 
Ultimately, there's only two views you can take in the world, grace or karma. You can split it down, but, you know, either you take the, the sort of self-righteous view of karma if you're doing well, that it's the other person's own fault. And certainly, if you've been to India and see some of the things that happen there, it doesn't encourage you to like a caste system. Or you operate in on the dance floor of grace, where there's space. But the key thing that we need to remember here is from Job, what's commended to him is not even his theological cleverness. Don't want to touch that. It's that we have to remain steadfast and persevere. The only time you really see Job directly re referenced in the New Testament is in the book of James. In James chapter 5, it says in the ESV, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Or if you prefer the NIV, as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. We'll get to what the Lord brought about in a minute. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So, this is where the New Testament has a direct reference to Job. And that's further into James, but the start of James, chapter 1, from the beginning, it starts, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes of the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask with faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. And then you go on to verse 12. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. James was the earthly brother of Jesus, or the half-brother of Jesus. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was writing these words maybe 15 years after Jesus died, maybe 20. The church in Jerusalem had been persecuted. People had been killed. People were running, hiding. He wrote this letter to a diaspora, a dispersion. 
people who were spread all over the Roman Empire, and they were asking lots of questions. Bad things were happening to good people. And those people who were dispersed, he was telling them to be steadfast, as he commended Job later on in the book for being steadfast. And he said, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, he's encouraging a persecuted church, and he's using the word blessed. Now, when he's using the word blessed, he is alluding to the Beatitudes. That's, I mean, he was there. He heard the Beatitudes firsthand. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. James wasn't doing happy, clappy, prosperity stuff, okay? He was dealing with people who were suffering. And those people wanted comfort. There's a great big tapestry in Europe called the Bayou Tapestry. And the, the Bayou Tapestry was done after the Normans invaded England. And they made this big tapestry that's hanging in a church in, somewhere in western France, in Bayou. And it shows the whole scene. It's like hundreds of feet long. But there's one scene in it that says underneath, the bishop comforting the troops. Now, comforting is as in Latin, come forty, to give strength. And the bishop is there with a pitchfork chasing the troops into battle. Uh, and so, so, you have to realize that comfort is not the same as care bears cuddly. You know, sometimes comfort is about giving strength. And, you know, sometimes you, it's not that you need to be let off the hook. Sometimes it's that you need to be strengthened in your inner man, to use the, the biblical phrase, yeah? get to that in a minute. Um, what I want to do now is just to go to the end of Job. And the last chapter of Job, chapter 42, it starts with Job's, the end of the poetic bit, Job's confession and repentance. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, 
which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So, at this point, Job doesn't rebuke, God doesn't rebuke Job. Job said, look, I didn't get all this right. And none of us get it all right, okay? After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the, the Temanite, he was the oldest of the three, the three wise men, of the, the three people who came to give advice. And these words are strong words. My anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right. as my servant Job has. So God is saying, Job basically knows my character, the character of God. You guys don't. You've got it wrong. And he says, now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you for I will accept his prayers not to deal with you according to your folly. Job, through his suffering, through his steadfastness, through his perseverance, has been given by God the authority to intercede for these people, not just because he was the person sinned against, but because he's been put in that place as someone who knows God, someone who can represent God, and someone who can represent man to God. In that sense, it's a, an intercessory role. Now, for us, we have a greater intercessor than Job, but Job in this sense is an archetype of Jesus who suffered in many ways and yet said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, and offered up his own body as a sacrifice, not seven bulls and so many rams and so on. Um, you've got to understand just the sheer respect God has for Job. He's respected because he has suffered in the midst of his confusion and yet been steadfast. Because he goes on to say, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. It's very important that we understand, you know, when it says in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord shall not hold him guiltless who taketh his name in vain, if you grew up with the King James Version. That's not about cussing when you hit yourself with a hammer. That's minor. Taking God's name in vain is when you go on a political campaign and you say, God is on our side, give me your votes and your money. You know, taking God's name in vain is when you stand in front of a church and say, you're going to heal everyone if they put their money in the bucket. That's serious stuff. I mean, it's serious. It's, you know, up there at the, the top of the, you know, the beginning of the Ten Commandments, you know, because you're misrepresenting the nature of God. 
And we, as the people of God, as the family of God, as the church, as His body on earth, uh, theology counts and praxis counts. What you think, what you know, what you do count. Because if you misrepresent God in your ideas, in your words, in your action, you don't get off lightly. Job's friends were self-righteous, well-meaning clowns at the end of the day. They were very wise men in their own worlds. They were leaders. They were lots of things. But in reality, they were fools. And God's wisdom is different from man's wisdom. And our sort of um, karma thinking of good and bad and adding things up and, you know, thinking God's running some sort of a ledger book like an Indian shopkeeper. I'm not trying to be, you know, in any way racist against Indian shopkeepers here, but I'm saying, you know, there was classic saying, and I, I used to have a company in India, they have a concept in Indian thoughts of the door and the window. You've got your shop, and you bring things in the door, and you sell them out the window, and you've got to make sure that you make more money going out the window than you spend when you go out the door. And that's, even for illiterate people, that's where their concept of accounting came from. You know, and if you can go into accounting and ledger books and how they're all designed and balancing accounts. And God says, yeah, we have to give an account of ourselves, but we don't have to give a ledger book account of ourselves, okay? And that's not how God makes judgment, but misrepresenting the nature of God. That's, that's a very bad thing. And particularly in times of great distress as we're in, it's wise to ask of the Lord before we speak and then ask some more before we speak. And to realize that for many people that you meet in a day, in a week, you don't know the impact your words will have. And particularly for people who are suffering, silence often speaks more than words. So the three guys went and did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayers. Not their prayers, Job's prayers. And then the Lord restores Job's fortune. And the Lord restored the fortune of Job when he prayed for his friends. So this is interesting. Job starts his restoration doing what he was doing at the beginning. What was he doing at the beginning? He was interceding for his kids. At the end of this, he's interceding for leaders. Now, this lady here will tell you the advice I give her husband one time. There's a guy, Paul came to me, and he was all excited. He's going to do all this youth work, and da 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 And he was just married. What did I tell him? Yeah, and I told him, if you can't be priest to your own household, you can't be priest to a nation. Job started out with his family. He was interceding for his family. He was mad. There's lots of people who want to go and do stuff out there, but if you can't get it together on the home front, don't think that you've been given authority to cross land and sea to make a single convert, yeah? So, 
He intercedes for them. And then the Lord gave him twice as much as before. So he had twice as many sofas he could cover and twice as many lorries. And yeah. And they came to him, all his brothers and sisters. This is all his family who disappeared. You know, we didn't know he had brothers and sisters till this point in time. And all who'd known him before, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter day of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yokes of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. Interesting here, he also had seven sons and three daughters. He didn't have 14 sons and six daughters. I'm not going to get into a theological discussion on higher criticism, but what I am going to say is the concept that the Bible evolves is not correct. This is a very, very early book. He's given twice as much as he had before. And yet, there is a belief that his seven sons and his three daughters are still in existence. He still has seven sons and three daughters. It doesn't say he had them. You know, why do you not just give him, you know, the same number of camels as before if you're given the same number of sons and daughters? The reality is, in this, Job's belief that I know that my Redeemer liveth extended to his children. He, in some way, the writer of this book is recognizing that those ten children continue to be his children. Not that they were his children, but that he has ten more as well. He's been doubled in everything. And even in this, it's saying death is not the end. Death is not the end. That is, that is something that is hard for people in this world to get their heads around. But it is not the end for us. And it's only a beginning. And so we see here, even this, one of the oldest books, and we can argue about how old it is, but a book that's widely read throughout every culture that grew out of the Middle East. And yet, there's the recognition of a real afterlife where people continue to exist, and they continue to exist in relationship with their families. And after this, Job lived 140 years. Now, normally it says you live five, you know, score years, plus, you know, whatever. You know, you, three score years plus 10, 70. So the 140 is again showing he lived a double normal life, and he saw his sons and daughters and sons and da da da, da for four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. And, you know, if you see what they did in the, um, the Greek translation of back 150, 200 years before Jesus, they, they put in another little bit, and will be among the resurrected righteous, which isn't in our scriptures, but, you know, they, they thought they better add that bit in the, at as well. And again, even at the time of the Septuagint, they were recognizing. And, you know, you pull in many ancient sources to put together a book. It's, it doesn't come into ours, but in the Septuagint, that's what it says. So, where does this leave us? Technology permitting. 
I think we have to have a mature understanding of suffering. We have to understand that some things help and some things don't help. And people coming who want to swap sympathy for information doesn't help. Someone's suffering is a very personal thing, and if they share it with you, unless they ask you to share it with other people, you keep it to yourself. And telling people it's their fault doesn't help. And coming together with a counting book karma theology where you're adding up, you know, the goods and the bads and you think they've done something bad or even that you've done something bad, that, that doesn't help. This is a fallen, broken world in many ways. And yet we're meant to take heart because through his suffering, his death and his resurrection, Christ has overcome the world. He's overcome sin. He's overcome death. And He is the resurrection and the life eternal. And that is, that is our reality. It's more than just a worldview. It is a lived reality. It is a worldview, but it is a reality. That is our reality. And when we come face to face with suffering, these are the questions that I'd like you to answer when they come and go. Whenever you've experienced suffering, what helped? And how should we respond to the suffering of, of others?